continuing in 1 Corinthians, we're in the 16th chapter, starting with the first verse. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Verse 5, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace and he may re- that he may return to me for I am expecting him with the brothers. Amen. The children are dismissed. As Paul is beginning to sum up his letter to First Corinthians, the First Corinthians letter, he is asking for assistance on a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. Uh, and so he starts right off with it concerning the collection for the saints, and uh, this collection is to be a financial gift. Uh, and, and like I said, going to Jerusalem. And the question might be, because he doesn't spell it out, as to why. And quite candidly, we don't have an exact answer. Uh, there is some understanding that during this time there uh, had been uh, some uh, famines in the Middle East and there was a possibility that there had been a famine in Jerusalem causing some financial difficulties for uh, believers. Um, but candidly, I tend to lean towards the reality that there was tremendous persecution in Israel. And within the framework of that persecution, uh, you know, if you became if you were in in Israel during this time of, of the beginning of the church, uh, you were very likely to be seriously persecuted. Uh, you might recall that at one point Paul was a persecutor himself, and uh, he's keenly aware of what these people went through. And uh, as a believer, you would very likely be uh, ostracized from your family. Uh, I have uh, had some uh, friends. Uh, back when I was in Bible college, who were uh, Messianic Jews. It was the term that they used. 
they were they didn't expel themselves, if you will, from their Jewish heritage, but they had become believers in Christ. And uh, I remember one girl, her family completely disowned her. She had no personal support system. And so she had to uh, work her way through school and, and uh, she had intentions of going into the mission field, but she had no... no her dad saw her as dead. Her name was not allowed to be mentioned in their home. Uh, and so... If that was happening today, you can imagine what was happening at the time in Jerusalem that Paul is writing about. And, and also, very possibly, you would be eliminated from your job as well, your work and your ability to earn an income. And so, this collection for the saints was to minister to those in need in Jerusalem. Uh, I think that we need to understand too that the church is still called to minister one to another across the globe. The body of Christ is not a church location. A church isn't a place we go. It is who we are. And we are part of a, the body of Christ. And, and uh, so we find ourselves supporting all sorts of missions, well, like the, the shoeboxes. You know, the, the, these types of things. Ways that we can reach out. We reach out through the rescue mission. We reach out through other means within the area. And then we also uh, reach out uh, globally through mission efforts and mission work. And we look for those opportunities where sometimes we even have taken up offerings for specific needs of specific church groups uh, or church people, or a specific church uh, that is having financial difficulties. So, this is what the body of Christ does. It comes alongside each other. We hear a need, we lay it before the Lord, and we decide how He would use us to help meet it. And so, this is what was happening here. Paul was exhorting the Corinthians, as he had already done the church in Galatia uh, and other surrounding churches there, to minister to the church in Jerusalem. And like I said, he's referring to this collection being a financial gift. Notice in verse 2 that he said, I want you to do this uh, on the first day of every week. That tells us when they were meeting. They were meeting on Sunday. And there is a... Uh, picture here of, of, of when did they start to worship on Sunday and there again is various uh, understandings but quite early in the church the idea was to celebrate with their worship and their service the resurrection of Jesus Christ that happened on a Sunday and so uh, they started to uh, worship on Sunday and, and gather together on a weekly basis. And he says, while you're together, put something aside. Store it up and hold on to it until I get there. And then he says it very clearly. Each of you put something aside as he may prosper. 
the, the he being probably as the Lord may prosper you. In other words, your giving is based on how God has blessed you. And I believe that you'll see. I, I believe this is a, a general principle. Uh, as he may prosper, no specific amount per person was was mentioned. And then it says, "Lay your giving before the Lord." In uh, the second Corinthian letter, Paul addresses giving one more time uh, in uh, chapter nine, and uh, he says, uh, "The point of this: whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully." will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. And what I, this is suggesting, and it, and it comes down to what I think is a, a good practice, is... Lay your giving before the Lord. It should be a consistent. It's it's best. It's easiest when it's a consistent amount. Notice nowhere that it, did he say here to you had to tithe. And I'm asked frequently, is tithing still the 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 right thing to do? And I'll get to that in a minute. But the idea was. You know, the key really was as he prospers you. There are people who have tremendous wealth, and God has allowed them to accrue this wealth. And there's an expectation, I believe, on a biblical basis, that this wealth will be shared with the kingdom of God in a greater sense in their capacity to give more. And there are people who have. Maybe just a mite. And Jesus makes a very specific picture of this widow and her mite. And it turns out that that was really more than a wealthy man was giving because it was what she had. So the idea is that we give, and I'm going to suggest to you that the, the, the idea is, is, is sacrificial giving. Meaning, you could have done something else with that money, but you chose not to and want to support the kingdom of God and His work. And this is what Paul is asking from them. And, but the question still comes down to, where does the tithe come in? In the Old Testament, the law in Leviticus spelled out the tithe. Ten percent. But what is interesting was they not only tithed their income, but they tithed their crops, they tithed several different areas of their lifestyle, and as a result, uh, they were tithing somewhere between 20 and 25% if they were obedient Jews to the law. And there was, uh, but like I said, in the New Testament, there's no specific command. But I believe there is a principle. Let me share with you what I see. In the very beginning, in Genesis, in chapter 14, 
we have a very interesting occurrence. Lot had gone off to Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham had gone to rescue Lot. He was returning with the spoils of a victory. And it says, uh, after his return from the defeat of, of uh, Shalilamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, now he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham by God, uh, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be, uh, the, uh, be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom and Abraham Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. And it goes on. But here, this king, notice his, his name, name means he was the priest of God Most High uh, and, he is, and he was blessing Abraham. And uh, so we see Abraham giving to Melchizedek a tenth of all, this, all that he had with him. And there's a, I believe, a principle there, if you will, uh, of him giving a tithe, a principle of tithing to the work of God. And here, let me share this with you because the question mark is who is Melchizedek? In the book of Hebrews, It says that Jesus had gone ahead of us as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, by the way, that's king of peace, uh, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything, he is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then he is also King of Salem, which is King of Peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. There's a lot of different opinions, but I hold with those that believe that Melchizedek was a... Uh, Epiphany, or a picture of Christ meeting with the people of God prior to His incarnation. There are several others of those in the Old Testament. And we have a picture here then of it being repeated in the book of Hebrews and the idea of tithing. And all I'm going to suggest to you is, no, there is no specific command coming from Scripture to say, you must tithe. What I'm going to suggest to you is that there is a principle established that the tithe is, is as if you might say, a goal uh, to achieve and even more. And again, all I can suggest to you as to how you figure out where your giving is, 
is to lay it before the Lord and ask God to open your heart and your mind as to what He would have you give from what you have in the resources and income that you have. And, you know, we don't, we don't preach sermons on, specifically topical sermons on giving or tithing. We don't have campaigns uh, for pledging and, and all of those kinds of things that a lot of churches do. Because we really believe here that giving is between you and the Lord. I have no clue as to who gives what. I don't see the books. I don't involve the books. I can't even write a check. I've chosen to be that way. That it's, I don't think it's the business of the, the teaching elder to be involved in that. And uh, so... That's where we stand on this. We, I believe the picture of giving in general is, is that you should be able to give, as Paul said in the Second Corinthian letter in chapter 9, to be given cheerfully. Meaning without restraint. I, 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 it's not like I hesitate. I have a hesitation. I have to, to, to think every time. If I give this, I, you know, it, it, I'm giving up this or whatever. It's just it becomes... A, a, a simple habit of giving between you and the Lord because you've laid it before the Lord and you're confident that this is where God has you. And again, I, it's not a matter of percentage. It's not a matter of, of anything but what you and the Lord have come to conclusions with in your life. And if you are, from a family point of view, a husband and wife getting together and praying about it and deciding. So, in my mind, that's where the tithe comes in and I just say it very simply, lay your giving before the Lord and then pray for faithful follow-through. The second part of this letter, starting with verse 5, uh, deals with Paul's uh, plans to travel. He wants to go to Corinthia, Corinth, the church in Corinth. He really wants to visit them. He says he wants to spend some length of time, a length of period of time, maybe winter with them. In other words, if he if he were to include them in a, in, a, in, a, in a visit immediately, he would just simply go, say hi, goodbye, and be gone. And he doesn't want that. He wants to be there for a while. And so he wants to fellowship with them and, and, and teach and, and work with them. And so uh, his desire to visit with them, spend some length of time with them, it's rather flexible, meaning that he isn't setting a firm date. And you'll notice what he puts within the framework of this. If the Lord permits. Paul is wanting to make a, a plan and say this is what we're going to do, but then he puts a, 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 a caution within it for himself. If the Lord permits. In other words, I see this plan unfolding and this is what I'm thinking that I want to do and I'll winter with you, but I'm leaving it in, in God's direction because He may open other doors. He may open other vistas where He needs me to go first. And He's leaving that area open for, for a final decision. And in the meantime, He's saying, I'm going to stay in Ephesus for a while. And verse 9 1 Corinthians 16. He says, I'm going to stay here until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work 
as open to me, and there are many adversaries. Interesting phrasing, really, there. You know, there's a wide door open to me, and there's a bunch of adversaries. <laughs> and it sounds like they're almost like blocking the door. And so I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you know, what is he? He's talking about opposition to the, to the work of God here. He wants to stay in Ephesus for a while. There's a wide door, an effective work that is ahead of me. An open door, quite candidly, can be anywhere at any time. I want to bring it to a personal application. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you will be blessed. Even if you say suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. We don't think of, of suffering as a blessing. But he says you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as a holy, always being prepared. Listen to this carefully. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That is an open door. Somebody opens the door and they ask you. You now are allowed to go through the door and explain to them why you are the way you are in Christ. And this comes back to every one of us. This isn't for pastors or elders or deacons or you know leaders in the church. This is for every single believer. We are to pray for opportunity. That God would open our eyes to those around us that we might share the reason for Christ in us. I know I've shared this before years ago, but I, I, I want to say it one more time that you know I had, an, I had a, a person do just this. He didn't know me personally. I had seen him on a few uh, job sites uh, in, in the uh, Northeast California area around Paradise, Chico, and that area where this occurred. And uh, but we'd never talked to each other. We'd never officially met each other. He was just somebody working on the job, and uh, I was involved in industrial coatings at the time and selling, uh, you know, industrial materials. And uh, we. I showed up to one of my accounts and we were getting busy to put things together and and I normally helped him out uh that on on the days that I showed up uh and you know we'd have an opportunity to meet with some contractors and stuff if we could well it turned out to be one of the most crazy days it's the month of May in Paradise California that's the beginning of, of warm weather. And it snowed. 
And my friend who owned the, the company that I was with him, Ed and I, and the guy from next door who owned another uh, business, went out and looked and we said, well, if we open the door, we have to shovel the, the snow. It had snowed overnight and it was still snowing. And we were going to have to shovel to clear the way and all that kind of stuff. And, and we decided to leave the clothes signs up and go to the brunch house which was the place to go for most of the construction and contractors and, and stuff like that. Well, of course, we walked through the door and the place was jammed. Everybody else had the same idea. We're not going to work in the snow this morning. It's going to be gone by the afternoon. We're not gonna, just not going to mess with it. And there was one table seating for four, but one person was sitting at it. And there was three of us. And that was the only opening. And so we went and we sat with them with him and uh, he was very gracious and towards the end of, of breakfast we were almost done and and uh, Ed and Jim got up and, and uh, left and, and I was still sitting there having my coffee and talking with this gentleman and he started to share the Lord with me. Now I have to tell you just weeks before this I had told my wife, because we had, a, this is the early 70s, by the way, the Jesus movement was alive and well in California. And uh, we had a number of our friends who had become Christians. And every time we talked, that's all they wanted to talk about. And I finally told, and Kathy was interested. My wife was interested. And uh, I simply told Kathy that if our friends show up with their Bibles, I have no objection. She can visit with them as long as they want. I'll be down at the Wheelark, which was the local bar. And she knew the number. And uh, she said, you know, I said, you call, call there and tell me that they've gone. I'll come home. A few weeks later, here I am sitting at the table listening to someone telling me, according to what First Peter told him to say, basically, why I am the way I am, why I do the things I do. And he says, what? he says, you have a hang-up? And I said, yeah, I can't believe the bodily resurrection. And I can't see how these people believed it. I, th- I think it was manufactured. You know, it was a hoax. I had read the Passover plot and I was pretty well convinced. And... Uh, he says, well, just read the Gospel of John. I'd been told to read the Gospel of John before, the Gospel of God's love and, and hear how God loves you and all this kind of stuff. And he says, read the Gospel of John. I said, oh, here it comes. And he says, and just see if you can see John believing what he's writing. Well, I hadn't heard that approach ever. And we talked about it for a little while and he said the, the other Gospels as well. And I said, hmm. we'll see. Well, I left and walking by the bookstore, went in and bought a New Testament. Didn't have one, so I went in and bought one. Went back to my shop and uh, I had a furniture repair and refinishing business alongside of my other business and uh, sat down in my spray booth in a rocking chair that I should have been working on 
but the lighting was really good in there. And uh, I read the Gospel of John. And I read with the thought, yeah, it's, you know, he sounds sincere. So I read Luke. And I read Mark. I read Matthew. Backwards, of course, you know, like I did most things. And uh, nothing happened. I'm not saying there was one of those on-your-knees things, but <laughs> I went home uh, that evening and Kathy says, what did you do today? And I said, I read the Gospels. You could have walked into her mouth. And she's not very big, you know, so <laughs> uh, she couldn't believe it. And the Lord offered, opened opportunities simultaneously with that moment to do some work for a new Christian bookstore and then another new Christian bookstore in, in Chico. One in Paradise, one in Chico. And so I decided I've got to figure this out. And so I did the job for materials. They pay the materials and give me the profit in books. And a uh, year and a half later, I accepted the Lord. Okay, do you see the, the sequence of events there? I see God's hand orchestrating this, by the way. But how important it is that one person would turn around. Now, my two friends, they, they didn't want to hear that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh the, end, the end, end shot of that is, is that I, I was not a fan of Pat Boone. Uh, I loved uh, the uh, what was being called soul music at the time, and I saw Pat Boone as a robber. Uh, he took a lot of soul music and and rewrote it and redid the, the rhythm and everything else uh, to make it, make it palatable for a white market. And uh, then when everything came apart, when he kissed Anne Margaret in, in uh, a movie and she was considered a vixen and the Christian people were writing articles about it and all this kind of stuff and I thought it was hilarious. Uh, and I just didn't care for the guy. And I went in for my shop uh, sit down it was during the summer and at this point my, I had my business in Atascadero the days would get very hot and so I go to work I go out to my shop about 4 in the morning and do my lacquer work and uh, came back in for a cup of coffee sit down turned on the TV of all the places it was on it was on the Praise the Lord Club and uh, Pat Boone was giving his testimony and I won't go into all the details, but uh, he surprised me because I could never have pictured him having any bad days in his life, so to speak. And uh, he shared his testimony and how he had made a recommitment of life. And at that point, I said, you know, God, if you're real, I need to figure it out. And that day, I accepted the Lord. Of all the people God could use, it was Pat Boone.
But anyway, are we ready to share our testimony? Do you have a testimony? Yes, you do. If you're sitting in this room and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a testimony. God has done a miraculous work in you. And by the way, you can't escape this with I'm only human. Because you're not. You are superhuman because you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And if you open yourself up, God will put you in places to share the testimony if you're willing. And it can be to absolute strangers or it may be to a family member. I remember that uh, I did the first wedding in my family that I did as a pastor. My uncle came up to my dad and said, is this legal? Because he knew me growing up. And uh, my dad just smiled at him. Well, then my dad, a few years later, died in an airplane crash very sudden. and uh, I did his funeral and shared his faith, and, uh, which he had returned to just a couple of years before that. And uh, my uncle came up to me and he says, you really believe this? We have a testimony. And God wants us to share it. But there's opposition out there. You'll run into people who you th- you're thinking this is the time and the place and, you're in, and you'll want to share it and they'll get up and walk away from you. Don't let that stop you. That's, I believe that's Satan trying to get you to be quiet. And this is what Paul says. There's an open door here, but there's a bunch of adversaries. By the way, the adversaries are defined. I'm not going to go into great detail here this morning, but, but you can go to Ephesians chapter 6 and it talks about the adversaries being uh, basically demonic adversaries. There's that as well. And, and there's people who are adversaries. There's, there's where the opposition is there. The opposition to the Word of God is rampant in this world. Why? Because Satan still has roaming privileges. There's a day when he, the, the, the lake of fire is his permanent home, but it's not there yet. And so we have opposition. We have people, and I don't know how many times in my ministry I have come against opposition. And uh, I've come against opposition from uh, neighbors that didn't like the parking problems that the church was causing. They have come in opposition to, to city councils that didn't like the way our ministry was going and, 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 and was, they were trying to put a cap on it and just different things that have happened. Uh, and not that they knew they were being tools, but they were the opposition against the gospel. And it can be anywhere at any time. Many adversaries. Jesus said, you will be hated for My namesake. Those were His words in, in Matthew chapter 10. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, He says, He who decides to live a godly life will be persecuted. And you might, you might not realize that persecution doesn't have to be somebody coming after you with a club. It can just be what they say behind your back. It can be a number of different kinds of things. But what he's, what he's saying is live your life for Christ wherever you are. 
And if you have the opportunity, you can't force this. God opens the door. But if you have the opportunity, share what's in you and why you are the way you are in Christ. Jesus said something really powerful. Not, at one point He says, you know, uh, you know, there's going to be those that come against you, but there's also the reality that the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. I just want to quickly point to Acts chapter 19 that shows what Paul was working against in Ephesus. Chapter 19, I'll just read briefly. That, you know, He's there, he says, Paul in verse 8 says, uh, Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Opposition, in this case, was coming from the Jews. But that wasn't all of us. goes on in verse 21, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and into Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must see Rome. And so he's planning ahead. And, and, uh, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia, referring to Ephesus primarily, and about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. More opposition. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, came out against Paul along with all of his co-workers that he could rally. What was it that Demetrius had the biggest business in? Well, you see, Ephesus was famous in the ancient world because it had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The Temple of Diana. And guess what these simple, these uh, silversmiths made? Idols of Diana. And they said, everywhere this guy goes, people start becoming, it's going to happen here. They're going to stop buying our idols. They're going to disrupt our business. And they went after him. I'm just suggesting to you, your opposition may be something that you don't even see, something going on behind your back, or it may be very confrontive. But Paul is saying here, what the Lord is saying through Paul to us, is hang in there. Continue to share, given the opportunities, of who Christ is in you. And it's your personal faith. He's not asking you to share you know, uh, super miraculous things that you've heard about or anything. He's, it's your personal faith that really convinces someone. Even if you don't ever see it. I never saw that man again in, in, in paradise. He never saw me again. He has no idea 
of all the things that have happened in my life since then. But we're all here because of somebody. Do you realize that we're all connected to our to the witness of Christ to the disciples? <laughs> because of all that they did, we're here today. And who knows because of what you do, who will be here tomorrow? I want to give you just a word of encouragement in uh, the book of Romans. Paul makes sure that we understand this. First off, a verse you hear me say quite frequently, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We not that we don't deserve it. It's because Christ has taken it for us. And in doing so, we are called joint heirs of Jesus in Romans chapter 8. God shares, Jesus shares His inheritance with us. And it concludes in Romans chapter 8. Verses that you are keenly familiar with. But we need to hear them often. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give to us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who, who uh, died. More than that, who has ra- was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. That was what was happening to Christians at different places. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And every time we come to the table together, we celebrate what God has done for us. And He asks us to do this, I believe, on a weekly basis until He comes again. We don't pass the tray during the song for communion. We ask that you would come up and pick up the communion. In one tray we have packets that... uh, are sealed and uh, you can go that route or we have on this side the cups. Uh, There's two cups stacked together. One has the bread in it and the other the fruit of the vine. And so uh, let's uh, come together and and hold the communion. Come up and get it but hold it until until we've all been served, uh, served and receded and then we'll share it together.
this in reference to the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that He was betrayed took bread. And when He would given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let us share the bread. He continues, it says, In the same way, 
Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to be here together around Your table and in this fellowship. And we ask, Lord, that You would cause us to ask for Your love and Your grace and Your mercy to grow in us on a daily basis. That we might continue to grow in our understanding of who You are, what You've done, and what You are yet to do. We look forward to the day when you return, we went through all of this in in First Corinthians chapter fifteen about the resurrected body, and and we look forward to that day. Prepare us, Lord, to share wherever there is an open door you put in front of us. And again, Lord, we worship you, we praise you, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. We love you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Would you stand as we close our final song? In the back, feel free to partake of those and spend a little bit of time getting to know each other or catching up with each other. Let's sing the last song, Jesus Messiah.
Jesus Messiah 